So good morning. Any of you joining us online just now, I'm Joel, and it's my privilege to open up God's Word today. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, we're going to look at verses 24 through 34. And I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles, on your vices. We also have it nicely printed in our bulletins. Significant day, we have arrived at the crucifixion of Jesus. The event that changed all of human history. And on the cross, we're going to hear our loving Lord utter this prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Pause to pan out to take in the magnitude of the crime being committed. Mankind is killing its maker. It's actually what mankind has longed to do since Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve chose to reject God's reign by taking from the forbidden tree, that's when mankind decided to rebel against its maker. Don't believe me? Well, in Genesis 4, the very next chapter, the next generation reveals our heart. How quickly mankind came to utterly despise his maker. You have Cain and Abel, the two sons of Adam and Eve, and they come to offer sacrifices, but Cain, his heart isn't in it. He kind of says, here you go, God. So God rejects Cain's sacrifice. And what does Cain do? He kills his brother Abel. Have you ever thought about not only just the fact that it goes to fratricide within one generation, but what? have you ever thought about this first fratricide? One generation after sin enters into our hearts, a brother kills his own flesh and blood. But why? Did Abel do anything to Cain? Who is Cain mad at? Cain is mad at his maker, who wouldn't receive his begrudging sacrifice. But Cain can't get it, God, can he? How can he attack the Almighty? Oh, yeah. Mankind is made in God's image. Abel, his brother, is a reflection of God, which is why Cain strikes and kills his own brother to get back at God, whether he recognizes that this is his heart motive or not. And that's the story from Genesis 5 on. Projection of mankind's rebellion onto fellow human beings. But then, wonderfully, in the fullness of time, the Son of God took on human flesh. Jesus was born. That's where Luke's gospel started off. And Jesus came and he healed the sick. He helped the poor. He preached the good news. And now we're at Luke 23. And man now seizes on the opportunity that Cain never had. Creation crucifies its creator the cruelest crime ever committed. Mankind has its moment now, and it massacres its maker. Now hear Jesus' prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And let that stagger your heart. This, my friends, is love. Jesus praying this. You do realize if Jesus doesn't pray this prayer at this moment, the greatest crime being committed, it's all over. 
but the cross is why Jesus came. His blood would be spilled to save rebels because Abel's blood cries out from the ground vengeance, but Jesus' blood cries out mercy. Let's first pray and then try to take in the wonder of the cross, this second tree God prepared. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come to you with uh, distracted minds and much ignorance. And Lord, we confess that there is still rebellion in each and every one of our hearts. We ask and pray that right now you will do something momentous in the mere moments we have. Show us our Savior. Help us to see he is the cure for our sin. And may we love him more as we discover his great love for us on the cross, the greatest love to ever come to earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear the word of our God from Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 24. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So if you're new here, perhaps joining us online, uh, we're considering Christ's amazing love at the cross. For this is how God loved the world, that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. What we need to see today is this. You cannot stop God's love, but you can reject it. You cannot stop God's love for you, but you can reject it. See, nothing is stopping our loving Lord from going to the cross to save us. But we see here we can stiff arm his love and eternal happiness and choose to remain a rebel. I pray that none of us, online included, remain oblivious to his love because your ignorance can't save you either. I have three headings that I want to flesh out of Jesus' love here as I did my study. Three headings, last leg, last sermon, and last prayer. Last leg, last sermon, last prayer. We see here at the start, Luke lays out the last leg of Jesus' race, the finish line. The cross now comes into view. And we know from back in chapter 9, 
Jesus had announced this long ago, this race he started. He set his face like flint in Luke 9, said, I'm going to the cross. The cross is my goal, Jesus said, and he hasn't let anything stop him on this course. Upon his arrival, we saw Jesus allowed his arrest. He refused to defend himself when he was under trial. And despite the fact that Pilate saw him innocent of all charges, Jesus won't defend himself. And Pilate was pressured, we saw last week, as a murderous mob cried out, Give us Barabbas! Who's Barabbas? Barabbas is a Genesis 4 kind of fellow. He's in jail for murder and insurrection. Shocking. They demand a modern-day Cain be set free and to punish Jesus in his place. Verse 24. So Pilate demanded that their Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Shocking. Now I came back to these verses from last week so we could actually see who is guilty of Jesus' death. Who's demanding this? Whose will is it? It's the Jews, led by the religious leader. Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But who goes along with this wicked deed? Killing the only innocent man to ever live. Pilate and the Romans. Gentiles. That's our forefathers who happily go along with this. Friends, Luke is showing us that Jews and Gentiles, all mankind, we are guilty of crucifying our Creator. Every day, Let's admit it. We're guilty of shaking our fist and saying, God, we will not have you rule over us. And even if we're not steering the ship, maybe in the cultural context, how often do we gladly go along with the rebellion? So the last leg of Jesus' race begins with him taking the baton of a murdering rebel like Cain. Imagine being Barabbas. You're here in chains, you know you're guilty. You're scheduled for crucifixion. You don't know what day. And uh, one of the guards comes up. Time's up, Barabbas. (laughs) I think I'd pee my pants. And then to have horror turned into utter elation. As he's told, oh, you're free to go. A guy named Jesus took your place. Barabbas found out firsthand what is at the heart of the gospel, substitution. Our March memory verse is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It explains this. You'll see at the bottom of our bulletin page. I want us to read it together. If you can do it with your eyes closed, bonus points from heaven for you. We're doing this because we need to get the gospel down in us. And that goes for any of you online too. You recite it with us. Jesus wants you to learn this verse too. What's the verse? Let's say it together. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. I encourage you to commit that to memory. Because this verse explains substitution. God made his son to be all we are by nature, so that we might become all he is by grace alone. Some of us, we feel God's anger for our sins. We know we deserve condemnation. How many of us here have broken promises, stole things, hurt people, looked at things we know we shouldn't. 
used folks. We're all Barabbas. Even if we haven't gone as far as him, we're no different. It's actually a good thing. If you feel God's opposition to your sin and it hurts your heart, that means you still have a conscience. Praise God. And pray to God if you don't feel your heart being convicted by sin because your conscience is starting to be seared. Pray for the Holy Spirit to convict you of what is abhorrent to holy God. And then believe the good news. Jesus is taking your guilt as he heads to the cross. Jesus is taking my record. The book of Joel, let's say, all right? The book of Joel, the sorry story of my life. Each and every page Jesus is taking. Even the best chapters of my life are soiled with sin and much shame. And it all condemns me. And Jesus says, you're free to go, Joel. Let me take your book. And he gives me his book with every page perfectly white and holy and good and pure. He's taken my story to the cross to deal with it there. I wonder about Barabbas. But the question is not for us what Barabbas does next. We're not told. It's how do I respond to such an amazing gift? Well, I think what we see here is I should repent. I've just been set free. I should turn from my old way of living. See how awful it was, how evil it was when I lived selfishly and I hurt other people. That's, by the way, is why we have a confession of sin every week. We wouldn't be a good church, and I wouldn't be a good pastor if we weren't real about sin here. Jesus came, didn't come to die on the cross out of love for the lovely. No, Jesus went to the cross to make the ugly lovely. But repentance, turning from our old way of living, is only one side of the coin. And I want us now to turn to Simon. Verse 26, And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. We talked a little about Simon last week. He is a Jew from Cyrene, which is modern-day Libya, 800 miles away. <clears throat> He's undoubtedly coming here for Passover, the great Jewish holiday or holy day. Simon is a faithful believer coming to worship in the holy city, but guess what? He's not saved yet. He's not saved. Wonderfully, Jesus has plans for Simon during the last leg of his race. I want us to be amazed over and over in this text at how other-focused Jesus is. When he should be focused on himself and what he's going through, he's other-focused. Humanly, Jesus is suffering so badly, the Romans fear that he might die before he gets to the place they can crucify him. But as God, Jesus is directing every molecule in the entire universe so Jesus directs the muscle molecules in these Roman soldiers to grab a hold of Simon. Get over here! And before Simon knows it, he's forced to do a 180 away from the city and to carry a cross. And this is horror. Because the moment Simon touches this cross, this cursed cross, he becomes unclean and now he can't go to worship in the temple. The highlight of his two-month holiday trip is ruined. Imagine the letdown. Some of you do. Some of you understand Simon. You come in here and you're carrying a heavy load right now. You didn't ask for it. It's painful. 
You don't know how your life got all turned around. You were on a course in your life and now suddenly you find yourself in a whole new direction. This wasn't your plan. You might think, I am the most unlucky person in the whole wide world. And you look around and nobody else seems stuck in your position. Friends, I have really, really, really good news for you. First, there's no such thing as luck. Second, and that's because Jesus is in control of all circumstances. And that leads to the second thing. Your life difficulty and your later direction. That Jesus is, That's Jesus calling you to follow him. Jesus calling you to follow him. That's why you're here today. Jesus got your molecules moving and put you right here today. And Jesus is calling you to trust in him. Jesus turned your life all around so that you would have no other choice but to follow him. And that's actually the second side of the repentance coin, faith. To turn from your old life and to fix your eyes on Jesus and believe in him. To follow him. To take up your cross and follow Jesus. And if you do, you know what happens. If you begin to set your eyes on Jesus day after day, you'll begin to see his love. Love something we all desire, isn't it? To know that we actually matter. That we're cared for. That someone would catch a glimpse of us and it'd stop them dead in their tracks. And they would forget all about themselves and what's going on. And they would put their eyes on us and address us with love. And speak that word for our weary soul. That's actually what Simon's witnessing right now as he's following Jesus. He's following this bloody Jew this Jesus of Nazareth. Just think, wouldn't that amaze you as you see this man whose eyes are probably so swollen you can't hardly see? He's too weak to carry his cross. He's dying and he's limping on his last leg and suddenly he stops to show some concern for these weeping women. Verse 27, And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if these, they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? We've moved now to our next heading, Jesus' Last Sermon. And it's reserved for some sad, sorrowful souls. After 19 chapters we've seen of Jesus' public ministry, Jesus pauses one last time. This is his final public address. Luke notes that there's a great multitude following Jesus, but he highlights these weeping women. And we know, if we've been through Luke, we've seen he pays special attention to women in his gospel because women matter to Jesus. He's actually the only one who informs us that women were the ones bankrolling Jesus' public ministry. Now, we actually don't know if they're disciples. All we know is they're Jerusalem residents. And we also know they're sad. Sympathetic to what Jesus is experiencing. They know no one should have to endure this. But Jesus stops, turns to them, and he says, stop weeping for me. Full stop. Jesus says, don't cry for me. As he stands there beaten, bloody, bruised, and battered. Jesus is actually saying, your tears are no comfort to me right now. As he draws near his crucifixion. Does this surprise us? 
Is Jesus being insensitive to these weeping women? No. In fact, I'll be so bold as to argue that Jesus is looking at them right now with love, with compassion, and there may be tears coming down his own cheeks for them. I know it was months ago in our Luke study, but it's actually less than a week ago for Jesus that he arrived in Jerusalem to great fanfare, Luke 19. And what would you see in Jesus' face as he comes upon the holy city? You would see a face filled with tears, trembling lips. And you would hear with anguish a voice crying over the city, Would that you, even you, have known the things that make for peace. Jesus was weeping because judgment was coming on these people. Jesus cared. Because why? Jerusalem didn't know the day of their visitation. Verse 44 of Luke 19. They were ignorant of the arrival of God. Footnote that ignorance. We're going to come back to it. Jesus sees these women weeping for him. And Jesus says, your tears are misdirected. Weep for yourselves and for your children because Jerusalem is going to be judged for what's happening to me right now. And you can read your history books and Jesus is right. The children of this generation will rebel against Rome and the Roman army will surround, starve, and then slaughter the majority of the people in this city. Why? God's bringing judgment because they murdered their maker. That's why this backward beatitude. (laughs) Blessed are you if you don't have any kids. I find this hard personally. Being Jamie and I have been unable to have children. And having children in Jesus' culture meant everything. You were seen as blessed if you had kids. But Jesus is saying, oh, blessed are you if you have zero kids. If your womb is barren. See, judgment is bad for you. But judgment is far worse if you have to watch your kids die alongside you. Jesus' last sermon warns about misplaced emotions that miss the big picture. There's a lot of application here because we live in a day of emotionalism. We have this pendulum that goes back and forth between intellectualism versus emotionalism. We're way over here right now. Feelings reign supreme in our day, right? Whatever makes you happy. Some folks, they go to church because, well, I want to get an emotional uplift. They choose churches where they play uplifting songs and give positive messages all the time. Nothing wrong with that. You'll hear those sometimes here. We just played a joyful song I said made me happy, right? And I hope you experience joy at times at Heart City. But is an emotional high what we come to church for? How's that any different than being a drug addict? Friends, Jesus doesn't want us to cry for him. Why? Because he is the remedy to our rebellion. Would you cry over the cure? No. We weep over our sickness. That's what Jesus is saying. That came at such a cost. Jesus wants us to weep over our sins and to teach our children to do the same. Because Jesus' final sermon is a reminder. His final sermon is a reminder there is a coming day, a judgment day. And the words about the mountains refer to the final judgment in Revelation 6. Let me ask us, what are we doing for our children? Parents, Jesus is calling you to pray, to weep for them, 
and to call them to Christ and his cross. On the day of judgment, they won't thank you for any of the American dream you gave them. They will not appreciate any slice of the world's pie that you provided them on the day of judgment. But if they come to Christ because of your tears, oh, trust me, they're going to be dancing for joy. And the Bible and Christian history actually proves that tears for our children are rewarded. They are rewarded. Jesus gives this strange parable about the wood. What Jesus is saying is the wood is green and he's referring to himself. If this happens to me, judgment's coming for everyone. And if this even happens to an oak of righteousness, how much worse will it be for a dry rebel who is devoid of my word, devoid of my promise? Jesus wants us to weep over our sins. Because when we weep over our sins, that is the first step to repentance and finding the cure in Christ. And Jesus wants us to weep over our children. Because our children, some of us have children who are far from Christ. God answers those prayers. One of the great theologians in all of Christian history, probably the greatest of the first thousand years, Augustine came to faith because of the tears of his mother, Monica. As I come here to this text, I can't now help but wonder about Simon. Remember Simon who's witnessing all this? Simon who's taking in Jesus' last sermon? And Simon has children. Mark tells us that Simon had two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And we read in Romans... And in the early Christian writings that they both became believers. It appears that Simon came to faith. And so did his sons later on. So let's move on to the last stop. And the the cross and Jesus' last earthly prayer. Verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull... There they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke notes two other criminals, or literally evildoers, are with Jesus. Jesus is now fulfilling what he said in chapter 22. He must be numbered with the transgressors. And then comes the crucifixion. What comes to your mind when you hear the crucifixion? You have pictures, artwork. We've seen a lot of portrayals of it everywhere, right? Many of them bloody, showing Jesus in great agony. We've talked about the Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's Passion, and its graphic scenes. I mention all this because we've just read the source material for all this art. Did you blink and miss it in verse 33? 
Four words in English, three in the Greek. There they crucified him. That's it. No words about Jesus being stretched out, nails being driven in, screams, cries, nothing about his blood pouring to the ground. If you read the other three Gospels, it's no different. Read Mark. Read John. Matthew actually seems to pass by it all together in his writings. He says, and when they crucified him. So you just like, what do you think about that? Now, it's not that the crucifixion is not important. The cross is the whole reason Jesus came. But the Bible has a different agenda than Mel Gibson and our artwork. It's not trying to get our emotions worked up over this so that we feel bad for Jesus. You see the point? Emotions are a huge thing in our day. A lot of times we can get real emotional. We go to the Passion of the Christ, but does that actually change human hearts? I can get real emotional. My wife will tell you that some movies I really get into. When I get really into a movie, <laughs> I try really hard not to cry at times. Pet movies. Hachi, oh, that was horrible. I remember a movie in my youth, Homeward Bound, about two dogs and a cat, and their owners leave them, and these pets miss their own so much, they hop over the fence, and they're off on a mission to find their missing family, and then there's this scene where the cat falls into the river, and the camera pans over, and there's a waterfall. And the poor cat and the dogs are yelping, and they're all upset and everything else, and oh no, the cats go over the edge. The cat goes over the edge. I'll confess that I cried. Now let me ask you another question. Has that changed my attitude towards cats one bit? I see some laughter here. No. In fact, the only hope for cat love and Joel is that they make the heavenly cut and I become perfected in glory and I will finally have love in my heart for cats. Do you see our emotions? They don't actually get us there. And that is what the cross is about. It has a whole different point than us sympathizing for Jesus. This doesn't focus on the details of the manner in which Christ suffered. And because the Bible is God's central communication, we need to consider as we close the agenda that Luke was inspired to present and to consider the consequences if we would miss the meaning of the cross. So Joel, what is the meaning? Luke's focus is that God saves us at our absolute worst. God saves us at our absolute worst. Mankind mutilates its maker. The creature kills its creator. And God gives grace. The maker manifests mercy with Jesus' last prayer. It's a nonstop prayer, by the way. In the imperfect, he continues to pray this again and again on the cross. Forgive. Father, forgive them. I found myself wondering at this moment if Simon got it. Simon, remember, he followed Jesus here. He saw how much people loved him. He saw how selfless Jesus was as he's bleeding and dying. He takes some time to instruct some women. Would Simon leave once they started the crucifixion? I think not. What else does he have to do now? <laughs> His days for worship, his plans are ruined. I think Simon stuck around for Jesus' last prayer during his earthly life. He watched Jesus freely and gladly give himself to the cursed death of the cross 
And then he hears Jesus pray again and again, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Over and over and over. And now let's go back to that footnote I put there earlier. Jesus is not saying they, and that they is everyone, Jew and Gentile, you and me. Jesus is not saying they do not know what they do, so they're not guilty. No, Jesus pleads the Father forgive them because they are guilty. Guilty of what? Ignorance. Guilty of ignorance. That's the reason they need forgiveness. They need forgiveness because they're so far gone in sin that they don't even realize they're killing their God. They've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness for so long, they are hardened in their evil. Praise be to God, Jesus' final prayer, he pities us. That's why he's saying we need to weep for ourselves. Can you even imagine? Jesus there, Father, I'm dying on this cross horribly. And yes, they're doing this to me, your beloved son. It's pure wickedness, it's pure evil, it's horrible, this is awful. And yes, they're that far gone, but Father, forgive them. Again and again and again. Father, I beg you. I think Simon responded as he saw how God's great love outdoes our great evil. I may be wrong about Simon, but all that matters as we close here is your response. You and I cannot plead ignorance, not on Judgment Day. Simon Peter will tell the Jews in Acts 3.17 that you acted in ignorance. God overlooked that, but now is the time to repent and believe. And Paul will tell the Gentiles in Acts 17, the time of ignorance is past. I'm telling you the same today. And I do it with great hope. Because the Father began and still is answering Jesus' final earthly prayer on earth. J.C. Rowell writes, The fruits of this wonderful prayer will never be fully seen until the day when the books are opened and the secrets of all hearts are revealed. We have probably not the least idea how many conversions to God at Jerusalem took place during the first six months after the crucifixion as a direct result of this prayer. Perhaps this prayer was the first step towards the penitent thief's repentance. Perhaps it was one means of afflicting the centurion who declared our Lord a righteous man and of moving the hearts of all the other people who witnessed the crucifixion and who beat their breasts and went away. Let us see in our Lord's intercession a striking example of the Spirit which should reign in the hearts of all his people. Revival began shortly after Jesus prayed this prayer. We know 3,000 came to faith in Acts 2. And friends, it continues to the present day. All men are by nature enemies of God, but Jesus and his cross came to bring us peace, Romans 5.10. So my question for you, if you're not yet a Christian, do you know this peace, the forgiveness of all your sins, all your shame? Please reach out if you don't. If you do, then our take home is to imitate Christ. All around are people living in God's world how they want, as rebels, doing whatever they want, living for these fleeting pleasures as though the last, and hurting others along the way. And there's no rest for the wicked. We see it in our day. So let's this week pray to our Father that he forgive them for they know not what they do. Let that be our prayer this week. Let's pray for our family members. Let's pray for our friends. Let's pray for our neighbors who are far from God.
Let's take up our cross and follow Jesus in being other-focused, not looking at ourselves. And let's expect great things to happen. Revival broke out in this day. Why not expect to see the peace of the cross reign in our own day all around us? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're going to spend eternity trying to wrap our mind around the foothill of that mountain of your grace at the cross of Calvary. And when we're there, we will still be filled with awe and gratitude over the unsearchable riches of your great grace. We're forever forgiven because you are fully forsaken. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for restoring us into right relationship, for beginning the work of making us human again. And if we do not know yet peace with you, we confess with sorrow that we have done evil in your sight. Please forgive us for what we did knowingly and forgive us for what we did unknowingly. And thank you for sending your greatest gift, your only begotten beloved, to the cursed death of the cross for me. I receive and I rest upon Jesus alone for my salvation. And I pray you'll give me your Holy Spirit that I might take up my cross and follow him for all my days until that wonderful day when my joy will be complete as I come to see my loving Lord face to face and enjoy him for all of eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.